are we after Time's Up? Hollywood gets all the press, but are we succeeding at levelling the power imbalances in other industries? What does it take to change on such a large scale, and who's leading the way? You're about to hear from journalists who've been covering the movement, or managing their newsroom's approach to it, on how it's evolving, how it's being covered, and where things are going. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, conversations from Storyology, our 2018 Journalism Festival in Brisbane. This Storyology podcast is brought to you in partnership with Bond University. In the past year, since October 2017, we've seen something of a revolution since the New York Times broke that big story that has seen movie moguls and entertainment stars outed and toppled for the way that they treated women and the same women who for decades were powerless to do anything because they didn't have the bank balance and the power that those men did have. So, so much has happened, been written, debated, said since 2017, but the purpose of our panel today is to discuss whether or not there has been any real change. Has there been a shift in the balance of power between men and women? And whether or not the momentum of Me Too will continue. And I think just to set the, the, the tone of let's turn the clock back a little bit as to where we were and I guess why a movement like Me Too came about or the one that we were most familiar with. Rachel, so you were a young journo, you'd come down from the country, moved to Metro, your first big job, it was Christmas week, you were working with a whole bunch of blokes and having a few drinks after work. And then there was something happened. Do you want to tell us that story? Gee, you get straight into it. (laughs) Yeah, so it was my first week in what I thought was my dream job and and still was, got me a start in metro journalism. But you can all probably relate to your first week. You're just so excited. You're meeting new people. You're reporting on things that, that you've never reported on before. And so we all went to the pub on a Friday night. And it was a tradition. A lot of journalists went to this this pub in Adelaide and I was sitting there with about seven senior male staff and one of them cracks a joke and said well they thought it was funny I didn't you're working the Christmas day night shift I said oh yeah yeah I'm on four to midnight and he goes oh you know what that shift involves and then proceeded to tell me that I would need to attend the conference room upstairs for a task that didn't involve journalism and all the men started laughing and chipping in about how funny it is and and you know it's like in those movies where everything goes slow motion and I just wanted the floor to swallow me up I was absolutely humiliated and it wasn't what they said to me even though that was bad enough it was more the belittling of a young cub journo who's just wanting to get somewhere in life and and they just moved on like that but even 20 years later so it was a long time ago I still think about that moment and I would hope that it wouldn't happen to a young journo today and I'm pretty sure it wouldn't but I could be, could be wrong but I think we have come a long way but it, it, was, it was very confronting. It's a really confronting story when you know what the actual words were but also it took you a really long time to talk about that. Yeah, it did. So <laughs> what's changed? That is it just because you're older and you're more experienced or has the actual environment mm. changed? I think the environment definitely has changed and not just in the last year but I certainly think I was more comfortable talking about it but not I probably only mentioned it for the first time maybe three or four years ago only like my close family knew about the story and I think now there's a lot more women in positions of leadership which makes a difference but I also feel like if you can't speak up when you're a young journo then when can you and I would hope that today if if it did happen someone would come to me as a senior leader and and explain it to me but yeah it it really did affect me in in a way that it probably shouldn't have but I don't know I think you were okay (laughs) to be affected by that yeah Catherine that that story is an example of that a very big power imbalance and Rachel was the only woman working at the time and didn't talk about it they thought it was funny it wasn't funny at all and it's not something I think that women ever do if the situation is reversed but do you think that sort of power imbalance going back 20 years is that the basis for why women are still treated differently or are they still treated differently I know they're still paid less than men in many fields do you think that's where it comes from lack of numbers (laughs) well yes absolutely um but 
Before we go on, I just want to thank the Walkleys for, for actually putting this forum on. And I think that we need to have more of them because I think something important has shifted. And it is around power, of course it is. It's also about how we value what women do. And I mean that both in the domestic and the paid work spheres. I think that women are still vastly underrepresented in formal positions of power. Now it is shifting, and Rachel's quite right that that has changed, but the statistics, my goodness, I think with the announcement of the new CEO of Macquarie Bank, we got up to 12 or 13 women ASX 200 CEOs. Exactly. Not so different from when I started out at the Fin Review in the early, uh, well, late 80s, in fact, but started writing a column about this in the early 90s. So has that shifted? Not a lot. A key management roles, no, not a lot of women, about 20%. Same with law firm partnerships, where we have women streaming out of law degrees, and they've been doing that for a long time. So, no, that stuff hasn't shifted. What has shifted, though, and I think it's enormously encouraging, I think that young women now probably would not do that, and that's not to reflect on, Rachel, your completely understandable reaction, and probably also a feeling of guilt at some level, which I think a lot of us have felt in those moments, and I think that's what, me too, and just activism by women recently has changed for us. I think it's taken some of the onus from our shoulders to prove that sexism and bias exists. It's affirmed because our experience and shown that we actually were not the guilty ones and that it's happened to hundreds of thousands of women around the world. So I think there's some really powerful stuff happening. And my reading from the business world where I do a lot of speaking, in fact, I heard from a, a law firm partner this week and she said, women are speaking up. And she said, and I haven't seen anything like it in my lifetime. So I think something has shifted. That is really encouraging, and I'm always Pollyanna looking for the, you know, playing the glad game. I'm glad that has happened. Has it had any impact on salary, on the bottom line? Look, impossible at this stage to actually statistically look at that. But what I would say is that I think women are speaking up. So the latest data that we have, and some of it's Australian, shows that women do put their hands up for pay rises. Don't you love this excuse for the pay gap, that it's our fault? We don't put our hands up enough and we don't lean in? Nothing to do with the system, nothing to do with the way our skills are interpreted and so on. No, no, it's all our fault. Actually, women do put their hands up for pay rises almost as much as you, men. You said, you told me a story about how some years ago a CEO actually told you mm. that women didn't want to be paid more. Oh, more, more than one CEO told me that when I'd actually say to them, why do you have so few women in those jobs? They don't want them. They would tell me. Some quite well-known CEOs, and I said... How do you know? Have you asked them? <laughs> and, and quite often the answer to that was actually no. So assumption upon assumption, right? Based on classic stereotypes. Women are better at caring and men are more competent. And by the way, those are not my assumptions. Studies from around the world, around men and women, gender in the workplace show that. Women are seen as more caring and less competent than their male colleagues. So moving on from finance to uh, law and justice, Brie, you're a former judge's associate and also as a sexual assault complainant, you know only too well what our laws are like and we inherited them, as you correctly told me, from British common law mm. where women were the property of their fathers and their husbands. So the law is deeply tipped towards men. Is Me Too shifting any of that power imbalance in the legal system? Yes, I believe it is. Um, so I was a judge's associate in 2015 um, and at the end of 2015 was when I went to the police and made a complaint about what was done to me as a child. My investigation took two years and culminated in a two-day trial. And so my book is about very much both sides of the law, being a lawyer, working in the courts, seeing that side of things, and then really actually getting that perspective sort of blown open and seeing what it's actually like for someone to go through the system as a complainant. And I did all that and wrote the book pre-Weinstein, pre-Me Too, and it has really, I, I believe it has changed. And I think a really concrete example you can point to is that without this movement, the Four Corners report on Luke Lazarus and Saxon Mullins either might not have happened or certainly wouldn't have had the impact that it did, and the morning after, the New South Wales government announced a reform or, you know, a, a review, I should say, into consent legislation in New South Wales. Do you and think I, that was, you know, they was sat back and watched Four Corners and went, oh, geez, let's have a review tomorrow. Surely there must be more to it than that. But that's what the best thing has been in my, from the way I can see it, of this movement is that there have just been enough waves coming after each other. 
And so I don't know the Four Corners thing wouldn't have been the only facet, but certainly that was the catalyst that then put things in motion. And so what's really exciting now is a lot of the submissions to that review have rightly communicated the frustration that the issue is much bigger than legislative definition. And so a lot of the submissions to the review have been about not just what I would describe as the third stage, which is where you're finally at court dealing with legislation, but the first and second stage, which is the police service and Department of Public Prosecutions. I'm hoping that when that review closes, there will also potentially be other sort of wider outcomes that they find. Do you think that people often lump all three of those into the one big barrel? Absolutely. And it's very frustrating, but also it's quite understandable if you don't work in that industry. One of the things that's been really important to me to do while touring this book is to try and make this sort of nebulous legal justice system less opaque. For the vast majority of people who've never been exposed to the courts or to even, you know, had to report a crime, how are they to understand that the police service and the DPP and then the judiciary are actually completely like separate bodies? It is the system we currently have is unnecessarily opaque and because complainants in particular are not informed and not given much control over their matters and their absurd delays that are considered completely normal and acceptable, the system is basically inaccessible. It's, it becomes so confusing and so difficult to understand that it doesn't work. It sounds like it's ripe for disruption. If if all the rest of us have to do it, they should have to do it too. Catherine, the Me Too movement began actually 10 years ago. So a New York woman by the name of Tarana Burke coined the phrase to help women and girls of colour who were victims of sexual assault, to help give them support and solidarity. But it actually wasn't until last year when the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted hashtag Me Too after the Harvey Weinstein revelations that this actually became a global catchphrase. Why does it take a famous pretty woman to spark that? Because it's about power. That's why it takes it. And when we have a society that still evaluates women on how they look, one of the few areas where women do have some power, what, what we now know from the revelations from Weinstein and Me Too is still not nowhere near enough but they do have some power and that's why I think it came from there and I think it's really important that we understand that it's also though what Brie was saying these things don't just happen overnight this has been a groundswell I mean we had the women's only a few months before that we had the women's marches but well before that we've had wave after wave look at the women in Poland a couple of years ago marching about their abortion rights the women in Ireland more recently this has been going on for years women are incredibly fed up with being treated as second-class citizens, with having their basic reproductive rights curtailed. And I think that those things don't come out of the ether. But I do think with Me Too it is fascinating to see that it did come as a surprise to a lot of people in the US. Yes, it It came as a surprise. And and we can talk about, you know, the waves, and as both of you have, these waves that have been coming and coming and coming, but it's not until someone like Harvey Weinstein is disgraced and charged and all of that happens, then we go, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, maybe we have got to a tipping point. Has this been going on? This, this is sort of... Change often happens like that, though. Yeah, but it, it, it's... It does. And it, yeah. it, but, but the other thing is, I think that Harvey Weinstein is incredibly powerful man. And look how, yes. how, you know, incredibly aggressively he's been fighting this, even right up to today. So it's, it took considerable you know, power um, and incredible bravery amongst those women to stand up uh, to that. And the the Four Corners, in fact, it was a BBC report about what happened in the London office of Weinstein, which was also incredibly revelatory. But also I wanted to say that, you know, women have always spoken up. I mean, this idea that we have passively sat back and not complained is not true. Women were not heard. We were not taken seriously and we were told we were making it up. And that's, as I say, that's one of the things that I think the whole Me Too movement. But other waves of change and I did just want to mention here because she's in the audience my co-author Kirsten Ferguson who set up a campaign Brisbane based local called Celebrating Women which she set up at the beginning of 2017 it's not the same as me too but it did go global and it was to counter the denigration of women on social media social media plays a key role in this it really does do you think then that that just brings me perfectly to a nice segue it is about power and yes there was this amazing story 
story in the New York Times. But the way that it has captured the imagination of people who don't even know the New York Times exists has been through social media because everyone can buy in. Is that a fundamental power shift? Oh, yes. I think so. So it's an unmediated medium, if you like. So the, the barriers to entry are lower. And I think that's absolutely been pivotal. What I would observe now as a journalist, a loyal one, former Fairfax, <laughs> Channel 9. I can't, can't get my head around that one. But what I would also observe is that it is the combining of the power of social media and the, just the sheer numbers using social media with formal mainstream media. So a colleague of mine at the Fin Review who's been reporting on a lot of Me Too moments in professional services, his phone is ringing off the hook and it is women, angry, angry, fed up women from all kinds of businesses. So we're ringing him to say, we've had enough. We have watched someone who's been a harasser, a bullier, who's been going on for years and it's time that this is investigated. So I think it's both and I think it's worked incredibly effectively but it is also what makes me very optimistic about the future is social media. Brie? Yeah, I just got to, I guess I wanted to add as well that there's a difference too between sort of what is what is true which is this sort of democratising of communication and access to information that happens on social media but another thing that we've seen that has become mm. very powerful is just the internet as a tool over the past sort of decade to connect previously separated women and the ability that those women now have to even not just like on a public Facebook post but in a Facebook group or even in different social media private messaging you know direct mm. message chats the scope that that has given women from you know, they might be in the same company but in different departments or even just in the same industry but different companies. The ability that the internet has given women and creating digitally... Safe, yes, and to create yeah. a safe space, to create a virtual safe space that then can be carried out into a literal safe space, that has been huge. Rachel, how has it changed the way... How has social media changed the way that mainstream media reports on things like the Me Too movement or even how you go about covering stories in relation to sexual violence against women? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has, has opened up to a lot more opportunities for follow storylines and such, but it is also, it's a help but it can be a hindrance because it's immediate Facebook and, and Twitter and the likes and there's no balance or checks put on them for accuracy unless we're doing it as a, as a media organisation. So... You don't know, someone might put up a comment and it could be a fantastic story but they might be just getting back at someone because they're so angry at them and it's not true. And So it, it has put a lot more uh, checks and balances in terms of making sure these posts are correct. But I also find, you know, back when we all started out there wasn't, wasn't this access to information. You had to really, really work to get it and sometimes... Yeah, with some of the, the younger journos coming through, you, you have to ask the basic questions like, have you checked that? Is that validated? And, and it's like, oh, yeah, I've seen it on Facebook. It's like, well, no. <laughs> That's not 100% until you've made it 100% with your own check. So, as I say, it's a help and a hindrance, but it has more so been a help than a hindrance, yes. Mm. Um, Brie, social media moves breakneck pace. Law doesn't. <laughs> and probably doesn't take notice of social media. So how do you reconcile those two things? Does it have any impact at all in, in shifting things in the law? Um, well, yes, and there are a few different ways in which it does. One question I get asked a lot is about juries. After writing the book and the passages in the book, people didn't realise how skewed the jury system is, particularly in Queensland, but different states across Australia. And one thing that's really important to remember is that both the best and worst thing about juries having the power to decide questions of fact in a trial is that they bring the outside world in with them. And so that can be a really risky thing in terms of sexism and racism and classism, but it's also a really valuable, potentially valuable opportunity for the sort of ivory tower of judges and the bar to be reminded of what the public are actually thinking and feeling. And so whilst it is, for example, incredibly frustrating that in Queensland a defence barrister and the prosecutor, although the prosecutors don't use them, eight preemptive challenges to just veto jurors whose names are pulled out of the barrel and they will veto mostly women and young people if it's for an adult sexual assault trial. 
Um, Why is that? Because the prevailing attitude is that you're more likely to secure an acquittal if you can stack the jury with as many older people and as many men as possible. And so just as soon as you have jurors who are supposed to be a randomly selected cross-section of society who use social media, who are exposed to these ideas in a way that many barristers and judges are less likely to be, if we could just fix the way juries are currently able to be stacked, and even though they can be stacked a bit, you're still getting a bit of that public opinion in. And, of course, it makes a difference. So you were saying that in Queensland that they can challenge a juror eight times? Yes. Yeah, so what it is is that the judge's associate has a barrel and there are about 60, 70 random people's names in it. All count, Both counsel and the judge and the associate get a sheet of paper that has the potential jurors, a list of 70 of them, the name, the postcode and the profession. The associate puts the names in a barrel and just plucks cards out, so that's the sort of random element. And then in the time it takes for that person to walk from the back of the courtroom to the front of the courtroom, both counsel basically have, what's that, about 20 seconds to eyeball them and get eight vetoes that are absolutely, like, not questioned, just preemptive challenges to veto. And when they challenge mostly women and young people, that has a huge result on their final makeup of the jury. And, you know, we inherited this system from the UK, and in the UK they don't allow those preemptive challenges anymore, which is pretty bloody telling that the place where we got this system from has now acknowledged that that's pretty archaic and outdated. And it's different in other states, did yeah. you say? Yeah, so in Queensland they're allowed eight of those preemptory challenges, um, and in Victoria, for example, they've dropped it down to four because we know that it inhibits justice being done. And it's just one of the many examples of Queensland being really behind the eight ball. I don't know how she can say that. (laughs) (laughs) That, to me, brings us probably to another part of the, the topic that we're discussing, which is diversity. So if you have a jury that is not diverse and not representative of the community because it doesn't have young people on it, it doesn't have young women on it. That's a a real power imbalance that remains. And I guess going back to something that you said a little bit earlier, Catherine, it sort of struck me, and there has been criticism about our Me Too movement, that it seems to be for nice white middle-class women, even though it was originally started by a woman of colour from New York, is Me Too just for people who look like us? Well, no. And as you say, that's not why it was started. And if you look at the history of it. But also at the end of last year when Time magazine made the silence breakers, the women, Tarana Burke and numerous other women who'd been leading the movement, their people of the year. If you read that article, the, the women who are participating were participating in Me Too, saying here's my experience came from right across the socioeconomic spectrum. There were women from all over the place, and in fact, there were an enormous number of women, non-Anglo, non-white women, who were working in services, hospitality, and so on. And some of that was just horrific to read. I remember one of them, a, a hotel cleaner, saying we were seen as just part of our job was providing sexual services. That's how you know the customers and the, the, the people we met kind of regarded us. So I don't think it is. But I would point back, one of the things that Kirsten and I did, we've just written a book called Womankind, looking at this whole wave of change and what's been going on. And one of the things looking back through history is to remind ourselves, the suffragettes, which were led by Emmeline Pankhurst, she was a very middle-class white woman, but she brought women together for the greater good of all women to get the vote. It took them a long time, much longer than here in Australia. But yes, women with some privilege and education have the means, the platform, to get these things going. I think Tracy Spice has done that in, in Australia, Kate McClymont, some extraordinary women. But the point is, it is for the greater good. And a lot of the women contributing to Me Too and to celebrating women made a point of saying, I don't normally do this. I feel really uncomfortable about doing it, but I'm doing it because I want things to change for all women. And there were women from a vast array of backgrounds who were taking place in it. So I think it's probably right to say that sometimes the people at the top, or the people that we see personifying it, tend to be white, educated women. But I think they've made it absolutely clear that that is not the goal. The goal is to have things change for all women and to have them all participating. So we can stop feeling guilty then. Oh, yeah. Because I get really, really cranky about that. There's so many other things to feel guilty about, Kathy. You know? True, (laughs) true. That's true. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't. Don't just limit myself to one of those. Okay, I'll get rid of that one. That's good. A lot of power and ideas. I think you mentioning the CEOs who 
really believe, well, women don't want those jobs and they don't want to be paid as much as men in the same position. Unconscious bias, and it's all embedded in our language as well. I guess this question is probably about how language affects people's ideas of, of the power imbalance. And this goes to reporting, Rachel. Do you think that Me Too has helped change the way mainstream media reports on what we always used to say, oh, it's just a domestic, we won't go, whereas, you know, that just a domestic has resulted in, you know, a dead woman every week, every year, at least one. Has the language changed in how we use, write headlines, you know, like the good dad who suddenly snapped or something went wrong and it, oh, it couldn't possibly be the bloke's fault? Has it changed? Um, I don't think Me Too's changed that as much, but there's a lot of organisations that have spent decades trying to change the language used in telling stories or reporting on stories. You know, you know Mind Frame is one for, for suicide prevention and there's a lot of domestic violence groups that, that come and educate journalists on, on the language to use. And it's about not so much softening the message, but... I don't think people want to pick up the paper with kill, death, maim, scandal all over it. So it's it's trying to report the story in a way that people reading it will engage with it because I feel like people turn off when they see those sorts of words in 150-point head on the front of the courier. But if you've softened it in a way that they'll identify with it and then read it and get that's getting the message out there. So I think this, the work that's been done around changing the language goes a long way back, particularly around domestic violence. There were streets ahead where we were from even this time last year. I think Quentin Bryce's efforts with the Not Now, Not Ever ever report has, in Queensland, made a huge difference. Recently, we all got together as media organisations, which we we would never have done. I mean... There were 20 of us in a room. In fact, I'm sitting on this couch next to you. Yeah. (laughs) That is Jackie. (laughs) But it was to discuss just that and to do stories in uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, yeah. And I took that back to my editor and he got right behind it. And, you know, five, ten years ago it would have been, oh, okay, we'll get one or two stories in. But it's definitely as a movement... The media has changed, I think, to to get behind these stories, to get them out there, rather than it coming the other way up, I feel. I just wanted to say one thing. I don't think it's actually necessarily about softening language. I think it's changing the framework within which we... The emphasis, I guess, is the point. Because I think your your point about sort of male perpetrators, sometimes, you know, decent man... You know, went mad and killed his. But I think that's that has shifted, and and definitely it preceded me too. I think Rosie Batty's work has been extraordinary in that as well. So I think there's been an enormous shift there, and the framework has changed. But can I just say in the, the slightly prissier area? Well, I shouldn't call it prissier, but the white collar area that I was reporting on, I would notice for years we used to talk about women who executives and talk about you know mother of four. Quite yes. regularly, often with Gail Kelly. And, you know, I'd point out to my colleagues, you never say that about a male CEO. You don't talk about them. And just recently, I was just horrified to read the coverage of the former AMP chair, Catherine Brenner, who stood down, Banking Royal Commission, you know, quite rightly criticised. But the sexist language used to describe her was extraordinary. Now, there were stories saying that she didn't spend much time with her children. Now, we do not hear that about male chairs or directors. There were just different standards applied to her. And I think we've got to understand we still describe women differently and we hold them to different standards. We expect them to be nicer. And when they're not seen as nice, and the academics call this being when you're incongruent with classic femininity, you get penalised. So my last book, Stop Fixing Women, was all about stop blaming us when we we sort of step out of these very narrowly prescribed sort of behaviour standards, especially when women are in power. And we only have to think about Julia Gillard and the misogyny speech, which I was really interested to hear Lenore spoke about this morning and said, I remember the day of that in the newsroom and people were sort of poo-pooing. I said, this is an amazing speech. No, it's not. It's just about Peter Slipper. 
And it's really interesting that Lenore said stepping back from that now, and, and at the time actually, because she did write in her column that she thought it was an important speech, but it's very interesting how we are very incredibly critical of women is, in power. Is it deliberate or is it just because that's the way it's always been? I know you can use it, if deliberately you can use it as a weapon I'm, if you want to destroy someone yeah. by saying things like that about women, you know, didn't spend well, much time with the kids, geez, I'm going to be in trouble. But, you know, is it deliberate or is it just that unconscious well, I think thing? some of it's deliberate, absolutely. It's seen as a chink. It's seen as something that you'll get, you know, traction on. The whole unconscious bias thing drives me nuts. I think we should be dealing with conscious bias before we start spending, you know, dragging everyone through unconscious bias programs, which, by the way, research shows confirms biases for most people. Oh, excellent. Mm. So not really having the, the, the desired effect. Look, my point is that we still hold women up to double standards. There's still a scarcity effect. There's so few of them in positions of power. They're scrutinised. There are so many examples in our own country, but certainly overseas. Where, and, you know, Hillary Clinton said recently in Sydney, I wasn't there, but a friend was telling me that the more senior you become you become as a woman, the less likeable you are seen as. And again, there's just so much evidence of that. Women being held to a higher standard, there, there's been a, there was a recent rape trial here in Queensland and it encapsulated so much of what we've just been talking about, Brie. A former local politician, local government politician, was charged and, and has been found guilty of raping his wife. It's taken her 10 years to get the courage to come forward and to make that complaint and it, it goes to consent as well, as we were discussing a little bit earlier. He, as is his right under the legal system, chose not to be cross-examined in court. She spent 12 hours being cross-examined because if she didn't, he would have walked. Is that right or am I being simplistic? Well, yeah, any person charged with any criminal offence has really two options. They either maintain their right to silence, which basically means that they simply put the prosecution to proof. You know, the prosecution still has the onus and the burden to prove the offending occurred beyond a reasonable doubt, or they can give and call evidence. What you're saying is basically true. No, he didn't open himself up to cross-examination, but that's also because he didn't give evidence in chief. He just stood silent. The tricky thing about that is... And obviously that was a horrific case. I will add that in Queensland it wasn't until the 80s that you could be found guilty of raping your wife. Until then, you know, that's not that long ago. Anyway, so the only thing sometimes that I saw when I was working in the courts, and that was a new trial and a handful of new sentences every week, and the vast majority of those were sex offences, either against a child or an adult, the only thing worse than a defendant staying silent and simply putting the prosecution to proof is when the defendant chooses to give evidence and puts forward an alternative set of facts and calls witnesses who will discredit the complainant and really mounts a active defence because then you've just opened this whole other can of worms that the jury need to and are in and are told to pay attention to and to examine the possibility of that sort of alternative set of facts. So I think it's absolutely critical that we interrogate why anyone ever is cross-examined for 12 hours. It's completely unacceptable. The way we cross-examine sexual assault complainants, either children or adults currently in Australia, is cruel. It is cruel and inhumane. Um, other places in the world get it a lot better. And mostly they're female? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And 12 hours is absolutely unacceptable and it's also unnecessary. Other places, for example, instead of having the adversarial counsel, if it's for a sensitive issue, they might have a judicially appointed third party who you know, is aware of the sensitivities required and can step a complainant through their evidence and also question them on, on you know, inconsistencies or points that the defendant wants raised, but they do so in a way that is not nearly as horrific. And I think it's very interesting that in Australia, a lot of the really good pragmatic measures we have enacted to make the process of giving evidence in court less terrifying for a complainant are first enacted for children and then will allow adults who are mostly women to use them a couple of years later. And the best example of that is the ability to give evidence via video link instead of having to go physically into the courtroom, which is a very alien frightening experience the defendant is sitting right there the defendant's counsel are there the defendant's counsel depending on who the judge is will raise their voice you'll be in the box for hours it's a it's a scary situation we allowed 
we realized that that was not okay for kids and so allowed them to give evidence via video link and that's a presumption and then a little while later thought oh okay I guess women can have that too if they make a special application and I just think it's really interesting that people trying to advocate for more humane processes in the justice system will often get a lot further if they argue that they're doing so for children than they will if they're doing it for women. We've talked about how the judiciary and the police and the prosecution all seem to be lumped in together. The way that police uh, cover or pursue crimes against women, and I'm thinking here of the terrible case recently in Melbourne, where and there was another case on the Gold Coast where a woman had been sexually assaulted, and the first thing that the police did was warn women to stick together and walk together when they were leaving nightclubs or when they're walking home, be careful... So once again, it goes to, it's our fault, isn't it, Catherine? It's our fault that we were actually out in public and not at home doing the washing by hand or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I know that I work at the ABC and we took criticism over, like we, we had people contact us in the regions who'd been listening to our news bulletins and say, why are you blaming women? Why, why is the ABC doing this? Well, the ABC's not doing it. All we did was report what the police had said. That's a really entrenched attitude and I can see why they were... Then there was a huge reaction to that was, I'm going to walk wherever I want to walk at any time, which, okay, fair enough. I'm still fairly careful when I walk at night because that's how we're brought up, to be careful all the time. Can I just point out very quickly, though, it was the police officer that made that statement sort of after the Eurydice Dixon. That was like, what a missed opportunity that was for the police to say... In this case, the defendant turned himself into the police station, but we'd like to take the opportunity to communicate to the public that if he hadn't, this is the kind of thing we investigate, and if you do this kind of thing, we will find you and we will prosecute you. He had the whole country's attention, and he chose to remind women to have situational awareness, and the most frustrating thing about that was that Eurydice had situational awareness. She had texted a friend saying, almost home safe. She knew that she was in a situation where she needed to be aware. It's just that she couldn't, like, not everyone can afford to take a taxi home every single time, nor should they have to. Situational awareness, she had it, it didn't help. It's like the incredibly frustrating thing about the way that was managed is what a hugely missed opportunity it was. My daughter's a reporter working at The Age, but she said that that message, that initial message from the police was actually misreported. She said they, they originally said, could everyone take care? So that, that's her reading. She's my daughter, so I'm, I'm going to stick by her. But the second one was many, many years ago when Golda Meir was the head of the government in Israel, there was a rapist in Tel Aviv and she got the cabinet together and had repeated attacks and the men around the table said, we need a curfew. We, we, we definitely need women to be inside by 6pm. She said, gentlemen, we do need a curfew, but we need it for men. And I think, yeah, I think we, we always look in the, in the wrong direction. What do you think, Rachel, when it comes to reporting on those sort of stories and your journalists reporting on those stories? And we've talked a little bit about this, but, you know, has it, has it changed, do you think? Yeah, I think, particularly with the police force, it, it's very, you know, at the top, it's very male gender weighted so we say and so I think there's some work to be done at that end too and he may have been mis misquoted but there have been other examples of that. I think it has changed but I think there's still a long way to go and, and as organisations like News, Fairfax Slash 9, it's, <laughs> it's up to us to, to lead the way on that and, and sometimes it's, it's quite difficult because it's not always the popular way and, and you're trying to be something for a reader to get them to pick up the paper to buy the paper but sometimes the, the message is still got to stay in business. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's a real juxtaposition almost. So it's, it's just using the opportunities when you do get them to, to make a difference more so than I think regularly doing it, which I think sometimes the Me Too movement, you know, there's so, so much reference now to Me Too it almost it just becomes quite crowded and it's hard to get that message across if there's so many people just attaching the hashtag to Yeah, to has it become hackneyed? People use the term, but they're not sure why they're using it or how they're using it, but they're just they're putting the hashtag on there, I think. You guys might have other views, but I do sometimes feel it's become quite crowded and 
sometimes think the message isn't getting as across as well as it should. What do you think, Catherine? Do you think it's been watered down at all or well, will, it, will we need something else to push it along further? Oh, uh, without doubt. I mean, the momentum needs to get going, but I think the horse is out of the stable. I think there's no stopping this. It's not perfect. Of course it's not, and it'll be misused. It's a social movement. No one's in control, which is, by the way, why it frightens a lot of people, including some very powerful men. But, you know, if you ask me, it's like all of these things. It is cyclical, but it's also about... You'll get some bad with the good, but I think the overall force of it is incredibly important. I mean, women have been told for years that they, you know, their experience is not taken seriously, that it is their fault, that they've got to prove that it happened. This is changing something absolutely fundamental for them. Their voice is finally being heard and listened to, and it's, it's about time that happens. So I, I completely understand that there will be instances where, you know, there are problems, where it's perhaps misused. But I have to say overall, and I'm sure Brie would agree from personal experience, women don't usually lightly make these, you know, or talk about these experiences. I mean, you couldn't even talk about it for a long time. These things are just horrible to relive. I don't think women generally, of course there will be some, because guess what? Women are just like men. Some of us are terrific people and some of us aren't. We are human, we have failings. But overall, I think the women who step forward on this do it with pain. And they only do it because now, finally, they feel that it's being listened to. So I don't think it's usually abused. So my book came out about, what, like eight weeks ago, almost two months. And the most common reason I hear, as you can imagine, my inbox is like full. And also I'm doing multiple events a week and people come up to me afterwards and share their stories with me. Overwhelmingly, the most common reason women give when they explain to me why they spoke out about something that was done to them, either just to their friends and family or, you know, fully to the police through the official legal processes, it's always that they do it for other women. The most common thing I hear is women saying, I didn't want to tell anyone, but then I just thought, what if he's done it already or what if he does it again? I didn't want to go through that process, but somebody else had told me he'd done it to them and I knew that woman couldn't go through the process more than I couldn't go through the process. There's just this overwhelming sense that women don't want to have to, to do this. It's really hard. It really sucks. It's awful. They're doing it for each other. And a result of them doing it for each other is a cultural shift. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm conscious that we're getting sort of close to... We've been talking for about 45 minutes... And we could talk all day, I'm sure. What are the next steps? All three of you, what do you think is going to push this on further so that we can... Or, or the power imbalances and the lack of diversity can be addressed? How is Me Too going to do that in 2018, 2019, Brie? Yeah, I guess what I'll quickly say to that is that... So the New South Wales Review, that's really great for the third stage for that sort of legislative approach. What we really need is basically the equivalent of the Quentin Bryce Not Now, Not Ever report, which was for domestic and family violence. The reason that was so incredible is that she went from the beginning, like from the sort of triage first point of contact right through to the courts and legislation, and she reviewed it all. She made 144 recommendations, 140-something, I think, of those now have been enacted. Exactly Nearly that. all of them. Rachel, we were discussing that at that meeting, almost all of them. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly that, what was done so incredibly by the report and then by the government enacting those recommendations, we just need that, but in every state, and for sex offending against children and adults because the way complaint... It's, it's from right at the beginning. So the first time I called the police, they lost that phone call. No record of that phone call. And I had to explain my story repeatedly to two men in a small room who were saying incredibly cruel and inappropriate things to me. And so we need that level of review from the beginning to the end and then for the recommendations to be enacted. Simple. A big job, but not yep. unknowable. <laughs> yeah, simple, but very, very big, I would say. Catherine, what do you think about what is going to keep the momentum going? Oh, she has a list. I have no, it's not quite a list, but it is a great quote. But I wanted to say what I think women and everyone in this room, but all our friends and so on, we need to do more of what we've always done, which is step up together. The power of numbers is absolutely extraordinary. Um, we all do it all the time. We always have. We've always joined together in the community, in workplaces, 
everywhere. We've done it collectively. We've, we've moved mountains. Um, we've got our right to vote and our right to be educated. But the little quote I wanted to read you is, has anyone been following the BBC pay scandal? So yes. last year, the BBC, yes, of course you have, Cathy, published a list of their top on-air performers' salaries. And you will be really surprised to know that that top 100 list virtually didn't have any women on it. This came as quite a surprise to quite a lot of the top women at the BBC. Now, it's caused a huge ruction and there's re been repercussions all over the place. But one of the, the outstanding examples from that was Carrie Grace. Carrie was the China correspondent for the BBC. So clearly not a slouch. I mean, one of their most important foreign correspondents, a woman in her 50s with decades of experience. She was paid 50% less than her male peers. Now, it's taken her months and months and months to get reparation for that, which she didn't finally get. The wonderful story in The New Yorker, which I recommend to you all, it's just come out in the last couple of weeks. And it's very long, it's a long read, which of course I recommend as a journalist, but it's brilliant. And it talks about how what she had to go through on behalf of all women at the BBC, by the way, from clerical through all those roles, because they, they asked them to look at it and review it. And she went through an awful time, but at the end of this very long article by, I should say, Lauren Collins, give appropriate recognition there, she says, the reason the BBC thought they could get away with it is that they hadn't factored in the multiplier effect of solidarity. If you tell me I'm rubbish, I might believe you, but if you tell me she's rubbish, I know it's not true. And I just thought that was a lovely encapsulation. Sticking together, stepping up together, and sticking up for each other is enormously important. We all know how to do that, and that's what Me Too's been about, and celebrating women and all of these other things. And I think we can do it, and we, um, trust me, this is seismic, and it's only just started, and there are a lot of people in power deeply worried by it. We can do so much together. We are the majority of the Australian population, I We are, after to all, yes. I guess coming to the media, and you were saying, that Rachel, that things have changed. I, I just want to take a, the opportunity just to say how much I think things have changed or I've noticed that things have changed. When I started in a senior editorial role, there was just me and my ten mates and that was the editorial makeup. So only woman with ten other blokes in a room and we'd be discussing everything. I'd come up with some idea. They'd talk about it. God, 10 minutes or something, and then they go, oh, that's really good. Someone will say, oh, Dermot, brilliant. Hang on a minute, Dermot. That's my idea. Give it back. And they really were respectful. They were really great guys, actually. So from those days to now here in Brisbane, the general manager of Channel 9 and Channel 10 are both women. The news directors uh, at both of those organisations are both women. At the ABC, the state news editor is a woman. Regional editor, me, is a woman. Local manager is a man. Channel 7, as far as I know, is still men who are in the senior roles, but a former colleague of mine is now the deputy news director of Channel 7 in Sydney, which is just amazing. So things have changed. Rachel, have you noticed the same thing? There have always been a lot of female reporters, but are you beginning to see that bubble through in the ranks of newspapers, not necessarily just your own? Yeah, I am. The, we've got in our own, a lot of females, like head of news, uh, managing editors, female, the magazine editor, you know, there's courts and crime editor, Kate, who's here today, she's female, and um, three other males in her department. So I think we're getting progressively to the right spot, but I feel as a female, and I think women sometimes, in my experience, have been the ones who have tried to hold me back rather than men. Really? And there's a couple of examples I've got. There was an internship that you had to nominate for to go to New York for four months to work at the New York Post. And I had a three-year-old at the time. And, of course, I nominated myself. And then I heard another woman say, oh, well, you won't be able to go, you're a mum. And I went, my child can't come with me. And it was like this look of, how would you manage that? Like, so I find that, that I found that quite like shocking that a female was almost saying, don't, don't bother because you've got to bring a kid along. Well, guess what? They can get on flights and your husband can get on flights and it's up to you to, to make it work for you and it's no one else's business. So if I'd listened to that person, I wouldn't have probably put my name for it, but of course I didn't. And there's all those sorts of examples. It's just, you know, once I got in a lift when I had been made deputy of the Sunday Mail in Adelaide and another woman said to me, you won't be able to do both, you're going to have to choose, so clearly you've chosen your career over your family. And it's like, well, no, I haven't. And whether I had or not, it's none of your business either. But So I feel like as to move it forward, we've got to have women supporting women more so than, I think, men supporting women. I think there's a lot 
to be done at that level too. I think that's a really good way to wrap up that great movements can start just by women caring about each other and sticking together. And I think they've done a lot of that since time began because other people weren't looking out for them. They had to look out for each other. I think that's a really great so that the momentum from what has been started or not, not necessarily started, it's that last wave which has been a particularly powerful wave in the past year has been about women speaking up and caring about each other and that's what we need to do to keep it going. And if you're a Queensland resident, just don't forget that you can just write letters to whoever your local politician is. That's how I got a meeting with Grace Grace yesterday and now she's putting me in touch with blah, blah, blah next year, blah, 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 blah. I have been really pleasantly surprised to find how easy it is to just do sort of like citizen level advocacy in Australia. You know, I've drafted a letter that my friends can now take bits from if they want to write to the people in their area who are in power and all of those things do make a difference don't feel like you are just one person or too small it really helps and so in Queensland this year later on there will be a conscience vote for updating abortion legislation please know that if you write to whoever your local politician is they are listening and I'm sure your inbox is going to become a whole lot more full because people will be contacting you for those words ladies and gentlemen I'd like you to thank Bree Lee Catherine Fox and Rachel Hancock. That's been a fairly hardcore panel. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe for all our announcements, stories and updates. If you liked this episode, follow and rate us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast was produced at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia and supported by Bond University. Catch you next time.